we still generally show abortion as the white women's issue and black and brown people are not centered or elevated as spokespeople. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. For this special episode commemorating one year since the fall of Roe v. Wade, we chatted with abortion storyteller Renee Bracey Sherman about abortion plot lines on TV. Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am hardcore cringing. I don't know if cringe even qualifies, but uh, on theme with this episode, I've been consuming, binging, if you will, uh, all of the one year out postmortem, how has abortion access shriveled in America. But the thing that I want to recommend to cringe watchers to seek out is a special reporting and photo and video project that the New York Times has done looking at the clinics that have closed, the abortion clinics that have closed across the country since 20 states restricted or banned abortion, 14 states banned it outright uh, following the fall of, of Roe v. Wade. And this is a special that I came across first because social media was pushing me a little video clip of a very compelling interview with the reporter talking about what it was like going across the country and try to track down the people who ran clinics that are now closed, no longer providing abortions, and describing the physical space and describing what they're now doing instead. Some people moved, some clinics have shut down, some of those buildings have been repurposed. In some cases, uh, people needing abortions are still showing up. In some cases, protesters are still showing up, not understanding that they've closed. Really infuriating, and uh, I feel like that was a very important and timely half binge, half cringe, so I will feel less guilty for my very light, uh, slightly vapid binge (laughs) this week, which is that I've been watching the show Glamorous on Netflix. And this follows a young content creator who is queer and aspiring makeup and beauty influencer. And probably most famously, this show stars Kim Cattrall and is her first big show since she shunned and just like that, the Sex and the City reboot and refused to appear except for one scene, uh, which is apparently a flashback and does not have her appearing with any of her other co-stars of many years. So we've all been curious, I think, what Ms. Cattrall has in store for us and She seems to have put her flag in the ground and doubled down on the soapy, doubled down on the campy, if and just like that is focusing on sort of older straight women (laughs) and, you know, straight-ish women who are mostly white as they age. This show is kind of the opposite. It's about mostly young queer people of color, so much so that apparently a TikTok has gone viral of Kim Grichol needing to have some of the lines from this show explained to her by her young queer co-stars because she didn't understand what terms like twink or prep were. Um, I cannot say that this show is extremely well made, but I can say that it is a fun distraction. I don't know how to hard pivot from this, but we had one of the best guests I think we've ever had. Agreed. And I think we found the perfect person as we we always do. But today's guest, so knowledgeable, so vocal, and really shares herself and her story in such a political way um, that I just have so much respect for her. Her name is Renee Bracey Sherman. 
You may have heard her referred to as the Beyonce of abortion. (laughs) She is a reproductive justice activist, abortion storyteller, and writer. She's also the founder and executive director of We Testify, which is an organization dedicated to the leadership and representation of people who have abortions. So basically, she is the person who is out there sharing her own abortion story, making sure other people's abortion stories are accurately represented and uh, powerfully represented and that the truth sort of can get out through all of that noise um, so that the real faces of abortion which are diverse and which have nuance and complexity can can actually get there into our public discourse. And the real stories of abortion in all of their diversity. I mean, we, we talked about uh, representation of abortion on TV with Renee, but one of the things that we talked about on every turn was how overly simplified historically our country and our world's understanding of an abortion story has been. And I think one thing we didn't get deep into, but that I want to make sure that we name check here in the intro is medication abortion and how it's increasingly becoming the story of of abortion in the U.S. and around the world. And I think I'd love to see more of that on TV in the future. But in order to frame this conversation with Renee, we went through three different examples of abortion on TV and really picked apart how that representation reflects our understanding of abortion, expands our understanding or, or shrinks it. And I was so impressed at her academic knowledge of every time abortion has been on TV. Any question we asked her, she had not only seen the show, but in some cases been part of the consulting to make sure the story was told correctly. Yes, she is, as we told her, she has great potential as an abortion consultant to the stars. She has advised Shonda Rhimes and many others on their abortion storylines. And of course, we are not doing this now for no reason. We're reflecting on a year since the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health that effectively ended Roe v. Wade. And to your point about medication abortion, the landscape has changed dramatically, not only because of the end of Roe v. Wade, but because of just increasing opposition to these issues and increasingly successful opposition because of medical advancements. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Renee Bracey Sherman. Renee, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to talk to you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We want to kick off by uh, just going back in time a little bit and hearing more about you and your and what brought you to abortion storytelling. What kind of messages did you receive about abortion? What what led you to this path? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I'm in the final stages of writing, co-writing a book um, on the history of abortion. And I grew up just sort of seeing um, Planned Parenthood donation envelopes around my aunt's house and I knew that we were Democrats. I knew that we were pro-choice, whatever that meant. I don't really remember exactly the first time that I heard what an abortion was, but one formative moment in my life was, um, I was in high school and I think it was a sophomore and, um, was in the kitchen with my mom and a friend at the time. And she said this funny thing to my mom. What would you do if, you know, Renee became pregnant? And I remember my mom very calmly, she stood at the island of the kitchen and she said, well, I believe that 
you know, abortion is a viable option. And she just said it so calmly like that. It was this really formative moment that I knew whatever I decided, if that were to happen, that my mother would have my back. Ironically, though, when I had my abortion, she and my dad hated my boyfriend at the time, so I didn't tell them. And I was afraid that they would judge me not for the abortion, but for still having been with him. So I didn't tell them um, until six years after my abortion. But I always grew up in this space knowing that my body was my own and that, you know, my parents were nurses. So everyone deserved health care and that abortion um, was a viable option. Wow. And that is an amazing story and probably not necessarily typical for everyone. Um, so of course, I'm glad like, that you like heard, you know, your mother state that really matter of factly. But of course, we get different messages about abortion in media and pop culture. And that's part of what Layla and I are doing on this podcast is to break that down a little bit. And your work today sort of directly counteracts many of these persistent myths that we hear about abortion. And, you know, let's just go through some of the greatest hits really quickly, get this out of the way. So, you know, what we see and hear, you know, we always hear abortion is such a, a tough decision. You know, it's so hard. And we know, we know, of course, that's not always true. Of course, then we also see abortion on like a huge belly. Abortion is always happening late in pregnancy. The prego belly. Right. The prego <laughs> belly. Not true by the numbers. We also, of course, see um, unmarried teens overrepresented in popular culture as the people having abortion. And we know that's also wrong based on the numbers. You're more likely to be older, possibly married, maybe you already have kids. And so, of course, all of these things are true if we see abortion show up in pop culture at all. We also have talked about on this podcast shows where they seem to be bending over backwards to like never even mention abortion. So my most favorite slash infuriating example of this is the Mindy Project, which I cannot believe <laughs> <laughs> it's based in a freaking OBGYN, like private practice office. And it's it just like literally never mentioned. So for you, Renee, like your work is going in the face of this huge tidal wave of kind of like misinformation, stigma, myth making. Why did you feel like it was important specifically to take on this work? of truth-telling around abortion experiences and stories? Well, I felt like um, I was a product of the stigma that was out there. I think what I heard from friends and, and other people growing up that was like, sluts have abortions. It was also like the white girl way to get ahead was something that I had heard. And it's funny, as we've been interviewing people for the book, there are other folks who've said like, that, oh yeah, it's the white girl way out. Which then when I started sharing my abortion story and doing this work to learn that the majority of people who have abortions are people of color, my world was flipped. Because within the pro-choice movement and the reproductive rights movement, we still generally show abortion as the white women's issue and black and brown people are not centered or elevated as spokespeople. I remember when I had my abortion at 19, like I did think that that was just who had abortions and that, you know, black and brown folks had kids and, and I being biracial, it felt like that's what I saw in my family and that my white family members 
did not have kids as teenagers. And I knew a cousin, one of my white cousins who'd had an abortion, but my black cousins had children. And it's so much more complicated than that, right? Because there's class. And then also there's the abortions that people don't talk about before, during, and after the children that they have um, and the lack of access to healthcare. But at the time I didn't know any of that. And so what I saw on, on television and when the reproductive rights movement would be like something that we could see, that was what was reflected back to me. That is a perfect transition to some of the TV we want to drill you on today. We thought we would kick it off with a hyper mainstream. Have Do you now or have you ever watched Grey's Anatomy? Oh, all of it. <laughs> I had not caught up, but I think post Dobbs, Grey's has been in the headlines a lot yeah. because of their ramping up of the abortion plot line. So there are two two recent storylines that I think are, are relevant to our discussion today. Uh, for those who haven't been keeping up with the one million and two seasons of Grey's Anatomy, Dr. Bailey, Miranda Bailey, played by Chandra Wilson, is one of the only remaining original cast members. In order to keep her character around, uh, they've given her her own clinic. And so she has opened a reproductive health clinic. And so there's um, one plot line where she's getting that off the ground and training new providers to give reproductive health care. And then Dr. Addison Montgomery, played by Kate Walsh, a real life reproductive health champion and inspiration for the spinoff private practice, where she also played the OBGYN Dr. Montgomery, makes frequent guest appearances. So we have Dr. Bailey running a clinic and Dr. Montgomery frequently coming to give lectures and trainings and um, at one point run a mobile van. And so there's one plot line where Bailey and Montgomery are trying to get a woman desperately across state lines to get a life-saving abortion. And that in and of itself generated some headlines. And then more recently, there was an interesting portrayal of violence against providers where we saw clinic protesters with picket signs, not an unusual sight in TV or film, you know, abortion clinic protesters or, or protesters protesting the provision of abortion within a clinic. But then we see a car come and gun down uh, purposefully ram into Addison and one of the trainees. And that was left on a cliffhanger and I think drove a lot of emotion. So first question is, where were these plot lines before the fall of Roe? Do we think that this is the new normal? Has, has the Dobbs decision and the erasure of abortion rights in this country suddenly made everyone much more bold? Grey's Anatomy since the beginning has had abortion plot lines. Shonda Rhimes like single-handedly has changed the landscape of abortion on television, particularly for characters of color. And I think she's so wonderful at, at trying to, to show this, right? I remember when I saw Christina Yang's uh, first, well, it was supposed to be an abortion, but then it became an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and Shonda Rhimes said that, you know, it was because of the studio heads that said that they couldn't do that. And then later she goes and has Christina have another abortion when she gets pregnant with Owen. But that's where the first one, the first abortion she sought, the phrase, you're my person comes from because Meredith was her person who was going to be on the emergency contact, right? So again, I think this is what's so beautiful about the way in which 
storytelling that that Grey's Anatomy tries to do is it's not just about the abortion story, but it's also how we show up. Again, Meredith shows up for Christina and tells Owen, like, get his shit together. They've also done later abortions. Uh, Jackson and April chose a later abortion um, as well. Um, And they've also done a self-managed abortion depiction where someone used like an herbal method or something, something she saw on the internet, fell down the stairs, and then they end up giving her the pills in the clinic and they explain the medication abortion protocol, which I think is so critical because there's Dr. Gretchen Sisson, um, the abortion on screen project. They did a study showing that people do learn from those depictions. It might not change their perception of abortion, but it does change what they understand, even in those couple of seconds of explaining how a medication abortion works. Those were all pre-dops. So Grey's Anatomy was doing a great job of trying to set us up. I know that the team over there is really thoughtful. Um, I've presented to their writer's room a number of times and and talked to them. And they've run what ended up being was the van and providing care. They ran different ideas past me. And I was like, well, here's what would be real. Here's this. Here's that. Okay, this would work. This would that. So I think what's really wonderful is that, you know, they had been thinking about this for a while. And then of course, you know, writer's rooms, um, they operate in the summer. So, you know, Dobbs had fallen and they were like, no, we wanna make sure that there's a lot of abortion in here. I also think what's really great too is Chandra Rimes has talked about that. She doesn't like having an abortion episode, then it needs to be built in, which I think is really beautiful with what they've done with Bailey's clinic. One, you see a black woman running reproductive health clinic and providing abortions and training new abortion providers. That is actually something that we are challenged with in this movement right now is that providers cannot get trained. But on top of that, she's got Dr. Addison Montgomery as well, which yes, in private practice, she was an OBGYN, but particularly on private practice, she fought to be able to provide abortions at that clinic several times. And she is a character who has had an abortion herself. And she talks about it, right? And she fought to be able to provide later abortions on the show of private practice. And so I think what's really beautiful about Grey's Anatomy is that, and the the Shondaverse, but the Grey's Anatomy universe of, of private practice too, is that not only is it just the abortion itself, but it is this larger tension of what people are trying to they could possibly be dealing with for a long time um, people have asked for a a show set in an abortion clinic and i think you know it feels like dr bailey's clinic is the response to the mindy project in a way which i at that time i wrote an article about it mindy kaling had said she'd been asked this why isn't abortion part of it and she was like well it's a comedy show and and our show isn't really about providing care at all which technically was sort of true but they did have an entire birth control episode so not really i it felt like an excuse but i think that she was also her example was that abortion isn't funny i think that the answer actually should have been something to the effect of, I'm not actually sure how to make it funny. Um, because there are a lot of really amazing abortion comedies out there and abortion plot lines and comedies. And so I think that part of why we have seen this like boom in abortion depictions on television over the last five to 10 years is because Grey's Anatomy and someone like Shonda Rhimes has shown how you can do it on a lot of different shows. 
But I think also because people just didn't quite know how to do it, how to do it thoughtfully. And so now they're learning. And then also because writers rooms look different. You have the increase of of black and brown people in writers rooms and getting their own shows, of course you're going to see different narratives in there. So I don't think it's necessarily tied to Dobbs. And I think we did see a lot of it pre-Dobbs, but it was often on shows that don't always get a lot of attention. And so I think that, you know, or they're bad depictions because there's been over a thousand depictions. <laughs> As you're describing, our critique might not necessarily be for the show mm-hmm. creators or the writers, but for the networks to let the storylines pass through. Right. And I think getting them to understand that you're not going to have your advertisements pulled right. just for having an abortion depiction and that audiences want to see this and that 80% of the country does believe that abortion should be legal and available and and they want to see themselves represented. It's fine to do. And Renee, you mentioned abortion on screen database and Gretchen and and Steph Harold is also a friend of the pod. So just want to shout out that amazing resource. And, you know, their most recent report sort of confirms everything that you're saying. So, you know, there is this increase in abortion plot lines. It's been a relatively steady increase, but um, they documented at least 60 abortion plot lines throughout 2022. And two things that they found. So one, um, for the first time since they started doing this research a decade ago, at least a third of those plot lines actually depict these barriers. So I think that's some of the impact you're talking about of Shonda, you know, being early on this and now more shows are sort of waking up. And then two, um, they still found that the majority of those plot lines do not reflect the reality of who's impacted by those barriers. So still have a ways to go around diversity. So super interesting. I love that they're actually calling you and asking you. I hope you have a future (laughs) as an abortion consultant to the stars. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think so the three of us, um, Steph Gretchen and I had wrote a paper a couple years ago now about race depictions on television and that one, overwhelmingly the characters are white and their whiteness has nothing to do with the story plotline, which white people have a race and that impacts, right? But also when the characters of color have abortions, sometimes race has something to do with their experience and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes when it does, what we found and wrote about in our paper is that it's often kind of in very stereotypical ways. The Latinas are always white Latinas with Catholic complex. The black girls are kind of dealing with sort of all the same issues of like single parenthood and being afraid of that and whatnot. And I think what we are getting to is that when we identify those issues, when we identify those patterns, people can say, oh, let me find a departure from that. And like, you know, what is nice about like being able to to meet those writers and in the writers rooms and encourage them to talk to other people like we testify storytellers who've had abortions, we can introduce them to new narratives if they have not experienced them in their own. And that just makes the storytelling so much richer and more beautiful. I love that. So let's go to our next example, because this is, I'm going to be honest with you, we specifically chose like a messy example for some of the reasons that you're talking about. So it's like a little bit loaded. So we're just going to give that up front. Um, so we want to talk about season three of Love is Blind, which is, of course, Netflix's reality show. And Cringe Watchers has actually covered this show in detail earlier in this season. We had a fantastic guest, Reina. So listeners, our Cringe Watchers know, but we didn't get too deep into the abortion discussion of that season because like this show has so many issues and red flags. So we chose to talk more about toxic relationships and how that's depicted on this show. 
show. But just as a reminder to folks, this is the show that bills itself as an experiment to help determine, quote unquote, whether love is blind and disability rights activists already have raised the way that that title is problematic. And basically what happens in the show is that these singles are grouped and separated by gender, which is, again, very heteronormative. They date in pods um, through which you can hear the other person but not see them, creating an opportunity to date and get to know each other sight unseen. And again, the whole idea is like you can just hear each other's values and make decisions about your relationship just based on your soul and not based on anything shallow or superficial. And then only if couples propose and get engaged within the pods do they have an opportunity to see each other. So Let's get into what happened actually in the season three, which is that one such couple that ended up getting engaged sight unseen, Bartise and Nancy, end up having a very sensitive discussion that I think is rarely depicted on any kind of TV reality or not um, about abortion with their family. So in episode seven of this season, Bartise is supposed to be introducing his fiance to his family, his sister and his parents. And he reveals Nancy's views on abortion to his parents and his sister the first time she's meeting them. And notably, we don't sort of know what was discussed between the couple like before this conversation took place. But Nancy has said in a later interview that she was shocked that he brought this up. And so specifically, they discuss genetic testing and whether abortion after a diagnosis of disability in the womb is acceptable. Bartiz later shares his oppositional views to Nancy on abortion. So he has the belief that it's something, quote, you can only get one pass for. And Nancy's views as well don't really follow what I would call a familiar script. So she's sort of gotten a lot of diagonal praise and hate from a lot of different communities. So she is a Catholic Mexican-American from a conservative Texas town. And she is sharing her point of view that sex, abortion, your body, period, all of these things that were not on the table for her to discuss, even with her close family members, have sort of changed in her mind since working with children with disabilities. So we'll play a clip here for our community where Nancy basically says, based on what she's seen and the high stakes on the impact that having a child with a disability can have, she believes in choice because of what she's seen. A lot of time, even just with Down syndrome, there's so many complications, medical and also learning complications. For me, if I knew that I could try again and hope that the second time it's better, then I would go that route, to be honest. Really? Yeah. I would never, I could never do that, especially knowing that we were trying to have a kid just abort mission because they're going to have some challenges. That f***ing rough. I could not do that. I'm sorry. So to me, what this scene represents, like most of all, is just that the politically correct sort of sanitized conversations that we often have in the reproductive health space just are not necessarily how these conversations typically go in the real world. Like they can go off the rails pretty quickly. I can hear Nancy advocating for choice, but I also totally hear and understand that disability rights advocates hear sort of a painfully familiar argument for eugenics and were very disturbed and alarmed by what she shared and by how Netflix portrayed her views. So I'm curious, Renee, sort of what this scene brings 
up for you. Um, in this case, I think one other element that is important is that the issue of abortion seems to have been used by Bartis as sort of a way to show why this fiance that some say he wasn't actually physically attracted to once he saw her might like not be the one for him. And so he kind of threw abortion in as like this political football or this minefield and kind of set her up to have this difficult conversation in this really tricky way. So curious, what do you think about this abortion depiction? And what does this scene bring up for you? Yeah, I mean, one, he was stigmatizing her. That was that was the point. It was to be like, look at this terrible person. Here's my way out instead of being an adult and saying, I need to leave. I do have to give a full uh, disclaimer in that I do not watch unscripted reality television. <laughs> I learned how it was made when I was 12 um, from my aunt, who was a director of photography. And so I just like cannot watch it. But I have heard <laughs> so much and seen clips about this episode. So I think there's a lot of uh, things happening here, right? Like I said, he's stigmatizing her. He's trying to say, oh, look, actually, this isn't the type of wife I actually want. And here, let me go to my family and get them to say it and do that work for me. He's trying to wiggle out of it, which just grow up and say that you're not into her and that you're actually superficial. And once you saw her, you didn't want to date her. Like, to say that. But I, I think he doesn't want to seem like the bad person so he can kind of transfer it to someone right. else. I also think that, you know, his comment about, you know, you get one pass at it, it's it's more multiple abortion stigma. That is simply what it is like that. But we forget that that actually still exists even in pro-choice communities. People still actually do hold stigma towards people of multiple abortions. And it's this idea of like, well, okay, you can make one mistake, but like, don't do that again. Because again, no matter what, people think inherently that abortion is morally wrong and socially unacceptable. So I am shocked, shocked <laughs> at how many people in our movement mm -hmm. voice that stigma. I, mean, I worked with my local abortion fund for years, and I remember calling to, to schedule someone's abortion and the intake coordinator at a clinic, major partner fighting for access said, it's not the first time we've seen this one. Yep. She's a frequent flyer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Also, more than one colleague in this movement, will not say at which institution, was talking about a, a spokesperson our organization was using and said, and she so unabashedly, blatantly admitted to having more than one abortion. And I was like, what are yeah. you doing in this building and with your life? It's wild. And I think one of the things that I'm really proud of at, we testify is that um, all of the staff, well, now we have one other staff. Uh, it was me and one other staff, the only ones who've had uh, one abortion. Everybody else has had multiple. Most of our storytellers have had more than one abortion. And actually, if you look at the data, half of people who are having abortions, it's actually a repeat abortion. So it's quite common, but it is something that we are still, even in the reproductive rights space or pro-choice space, like it's still allowed to stigmatize. And that's why I hate phrases like safe, legal, and rare, because rare is actually an attack on people who have more than one abortion um, or a lot, of, a lot of people needing abortions. But yeah, that's what he's getting at. And I think from what I, I've seen, it sounds like she's trying to say, like, look, I'm not a bad person, but this is what I care about. Because what it sounded like, and maybe I'm helping her out, is that she's trying to say, look, our system doesn't actually create 
supports for people living with disabilities, families caring for people with disabilities, all of these things, right? And I deeply believe that people should have access to an abortion anytime, any reason, anywhere. Like their reason is the best reason. I do not judge people based on their reason. And I think that when we are quick to judge people for making a decision particularly for medical indication, because we're, we're putting ourselves in what we think we would do, not actually sitting in their shoes and what they recognize they can or cannot handle. Now, I think this gets extremely complicated, specifically with disability justice activists, right, who are hearing the eugenics language and they're hearing it because it's literally there, right? And that is because our movement has not done the actual work to one, take that out of our language, but also to look at our own history. There's a really great book called Dangerous Pregnancies by Leslie J. Reagan, which people know her as she wrote she wrote the book uh, When Abortion Was a Crime. And it talks about a big piece of how we got to legalization of abortion in the 1950s and 60s or moved towards some hospitals allowing it was based on ableism because they were afraid of having the German measles, also known as rubella, and they did not want to saddle white women, in particular middle class, good, nice white ladies with a child with disabilities as a result of rubella. And so abortion was the solution. That is eugenics, right? That is what that is. I think if we don't actually recognize that this is a problem and that we can both have a deeper conversation about what our system, our healthcare system allows and gives people support for and people are making really tough decisions. We're never gonna get there. And and I think that these conversations are extremely messy, which is exactly what you see on the show. And I, you know, I feel for her and that, you know, she's like that was not quite edited, which is also why I can't stand reality TV because I don't like seeing the way things are edited out of context. But the reality is, is that we actually have to get used to having messy conversations and growing and learning and not messy in the way that people are getting hurt, but that we're challenging ourselves and learning from it and, and challenging like what we actually hold dear and maybe getting shook a little so that you can move forward because for so long the conversations have been especially with abortion and disability justice they've been so cut and dry and also our movement has not been challenged thoughtfully enough on the language that we use particularly around later abortion where they're like oh my gosh this fetus was diagnosed with, you know, XYZ disease. And that's and that happens, right? And people can talk about that. But what ends up happening is they talk about the fetus as if it has no future. And yet there are people living on this planet who have whatever that that issue is, right? And we're negating and we're saying that they then didn't have any value. That is a problem. And we need to actually work through that. Yeah. And I think more broadly, this is also the consequence of our movement having zoomed in too much on using an argument of exceptions like you we understand that abortion is bad except if you're Mm -hmm. raped except if there's a fetal anomaly except if there's this reason or that reason or we spend so much time as as you've pointed out in your work describing the life risking really dramatic cases and very little time on the quotidian, you know, I when I had an abortion, I feel fine about it, moved on with my life and went on and had another one. We spend a lot of time 
really articulating how special and exceptional each justified abortion is. And then we create this case for justification, which on the converse creates this very easy straw man argument for the other side to say, well, like, but not in this case and not in this case, or you're the ones who made the case for disability. So therefore any fetus with a disability that I can define, that should be okay. You're, they're trying to point out contradictions and it's, I get worried a lot because we end up as advocates spending so much time talking about rape and incest and it really does. And I, I've had lots of conversations within the movement saying we understand that that is a legal strategy around the world to legalize and, and, and make abortion laws more progressive so that one instance at a time we can get more people access. But our own language is sort of, you know, backing us into a corner in some cases. But also the strategy didn't work. Right, right. Exactly. All it did was stigmatize I don't know, because the data is unclear, but the about, let's say, 97% of us who did not have, you know, a, a rape that uh, was defined or re- like reportable or a later abortion because of some sort of medical indication or as a result of incest, like all it did was stigmatize. And at the end of the day, now we're ending up with states that are banning it without those exceptions because they never believed in the exceptions to begin with. They were just a way of, you know, cracking and and dividing all of us and to say that, okay, there are reasons to kind of focus on the folks in the middle to not seem so extreme, because now we have the head of Students for Life and saying the same thing that Todd Aiken got skewered for a decade ago, saying that, you know, if it's a legitimate rape, then it won't result in a pregnancy, right? Like, they never actually believed in that. They just did it as a strategy because they knew that it would work because we were still willing to stigmatize people for abortions based on their reason or how many they had. You all are getting me so hyped up to be balls to the wall for abortion <laughs> on demand all the time. Um, I hope I hope our listeners are feeling the same. Renee, we have one more show that we want to get to while we have you. And this one, again, different than all the rest. So this abortion depiction um, took place in the show Rami, which follows the real life comedian Rami in a fictional role as he navigates being an Egyptian American. And it's a quite out there show in many ways, uh, has a, a pretty passionate, dedicated fan base and has had some fun high profile cameos. But we want to specifically talk about season three, episode six, which does not feature Rami very much at all, but follows his father, Farouk, on a visit back to his home country of Egypt. And he goes on this visit on something of a whim after having some financial issues and just experiencing general existential angst about his life. You might call it a midlife crisis um, with a specific immigrant flair, I guess you could say. And so Farouk, on this visit to Egypt, he's eager to feel purpose. And so he realizes that he's being viewed as a kind of successful American in his um, Egyptian community, he leans into this and decides to present himself as an American life coach. This is kind of like accepted and he pretty quickly (laughs) gets into a situation where his driver insists that he help his driver's daughter, Shireen, who has been depressed. And so he finds himself um, having a private conversation with a young girl in Egypt, Shireen, 
And she reveals during this conversation that the reason she's been depressed is because she needs an abortion. She's found someone who can provide the abortion that night, but she's afraid to go alone because she doesn't want her provider to rape her. And she figured since Farouk is American, he can help. Um, her own dad would kill her if he even knew she had sex. But in, in this young Egyptian girl's mind, Farouk's daughter is an American girl. She's sexually liberated and she's probably had many abortions in her life. And so she's asking for Farouk's help. And, you know, Renee, you described earlier in this interview, sort of the first movie that you where you saw an abortion was for colored girls. This episode really made me think about the first movie, I think it was like college age, where I sort of saw abortion depicted. And that was a film called Four Months, Three Weeks and Two Days. And I don't know if this sort of made it into the cultural zeitgeist, but this is a fucked up movie about Romania. And the marketing was kind of vague. I don't even know if I knew that I was walking into like an abortion movie, let alone an abortion movie that depicts a rape at the hands of an abortion provider, which is extremely upsetting. That scene has stuck with me. And that's the movie that I thought about when I saw this episode, even though Rami is, you know, mostly a comedy. And despite Mindy Kaling's statements, um, they do manage to sort of make this an, a sort of interesting, somewhat comedic moment. So just to wrap it up, and we can't play a clip because the, the audio is in Arabic mostly for this episode, but how it ends up is that Farouk does end up accompanying Shireen to her abortion. He's sort of trying in his own way to be caring and supporting despite having many misgivings and anxieties about this abortion happening. But when they arrive at the providers, they're told to wait. We can sort of hear some gruesome scene in the background, a woman screaming. And this seems to be meant to offer a glimpse into the reality of a country where abortion isn't easily accessible. Sound familiar? And then Farouk starts to naively convince Shireen that love solves all problems and trying to get Shireen to keep the baby, including by like hilariously leaning into the idea that her partner may become more feminist over time. And there's sort of a moment of misdirection where the audience thinks, oh my gosh, is he going to like find his purpose in life by like convincing this woman not to get her abortion. She seems to like reconsider for one second. And then Dr. Cummins calls her name. She pulls him inside and she gets the abortion. It seems to be playing off of um, some of these other abortion storylines that we've been talking about where there's sort of a fake out or a conveniently timed miscarriage or, you know, something happens where the worst case scenario of abortion access like doesn't end up having to be depicted on screen. Um, so we wanted to talk to you about this one because it happens not in America. And we wanted to talk about a show that, you know, about a young woman trying to access abortion under restrictions in a different country. And another thing is just because it does seem to have this this piece about um, a man's involvement, what are some of the dangers that are inherent to accessing abortion under restriction, and even some of the abuse that someone could be vulnerable to because of abortion being forced underground. So what does this scene make you think about, especially when it comes to your work? Have you heard stories like this? And what do you think about specifically the depiction of a provider as potentially uh, dangerous to the person seeking care? Yeah. Well, one, I, I did always think it was funny that um, Rami's father was like, well, you know, a man could be more feminist over time. Your right. son <laughs> does not over three seasons 
he's such a pain in the ass and he's just like still so shitty um i love the show it's so good it's really really wonderful and i think they tackle you know so many wonderful different issues and we did an abortion on screen award um with uh our friends over at abortion on screen and we gave rami an award for uh the this depiction there's a lot happening here right you do have the influence like the the inclusion of a man but also the man who's not involved in the pregnancy and a man who thinks he like is like finding himself and is like oh I have all the advice and then he's faced with something where he actually has none of the advice and he doesn't really know what to do but they show him trying to figure out how to show up with support anyway even though he's uncomfortable and he's not sure of you know okay right and he's sort of being awkward that piece kind of reminds me of in Dear White People, Coco's Abortion, where her roommate is saying, like, you'll be fine, you could continue the pregnancy, and it's kind of actually leaning towards telling her to continue the pregnancy, but doesn't outright tell her not to have an abortion, which I think is what you'll sort of in real life see um, people tend to do. They might not tell you don't have the abortion, but they might just be like, oh, you could do it, you can do it, right? But they're not actually listening to what that other person wants. And they're not necessarily showing up in the exact way that they that they want. Um, but at the end of the day, friend goes with her, right? In this, at the end of the day, he goes with her and he he shows up. Is it exactly what we would want as, you know, what perfect support looks like? No, but it's a depiction of what real support can look like. And you can watch someone work through that. And it's a character that you've seen now for three seasons. The dad, you've seen him go through a lot of different things, right? And so I think that that is also equally powerful. And then to your question about her being afraid that the provider is going to rape her or take advantage of her at some point, I think that is very real. We've been interviewing um, some of the original Janes for our book. And several of them have said that the reason that they started Jane is not only to help people receive abortions, but was to make sure that they could get them at an affordable rate and they weren't exploited. And then they started doing them on their own to be in charge of all of the care because they did know that some of the providers would stigmatize people, would just be shitty to them for coming in like, oh, so you kept your legs open, you know, that's how you got pregnant. And also because they were often white men and they were in a position of authority, they knew they had the thing that the patient needed, right? And so therefore they could take whatever they wanted. And sometimes that included, it was their money, but also it included their body. And that did happen. And that does happen in contexts in which abortion is difficult to access, it is illegal, and people don't really know who they can trust and who they can turn to. This is what makes it really scary about making it illegal, because then, you know, if you report the crime of rape, then you could be charged for the crime of having an abortion. So, you know, that is something that has happened and does happen around the world, and it's really terrifying. And it is a reality. And I think that's something that, you know, Rami's dad recognizes and sort of is putting in front of his own uncomfort about her seeking an abortion because he clearly like sees his own daughter in this young woman, but also she is not his daughter. She is 
her own person and gets to make her own decisions and she's asking for help. So are you going to turn her away when you know that violence could be a possibility? And he's like, no, making sure she's supported and safe is more important than my own sort of uncomfort. Such an important point that you bring out about how keeping abortion restricted disincentivizes people from speaking out about it. Because I do think in looking at movements around the world, there are two kinds of movements for abortion act access, I think, around the world. One is provider-led. Like I have seen the consequences of unsafe abortion. I've seen people come to me, and as a doctor or as a medical provider, I feel duty-bound to protect them. And then there's the feminist-led, we demand access. And in the countries that I have visited where the movement is feminist-led, and you don't see providers, one of the main reasons they are blatantly missing, as cited by those feminists, is we can't get the doctors to join us because they are financially incentivized to keep this underground. It's not everybody, but it is a factor that this is, it doesn't benefit everyone to legalize abortion. And when it's illegal, there is a financial gain from people who are willing to exploit that. And I just want to clear, I'm not saying all providers, I'm just saying this is a, another, yet another barrier of activism around the world. Of course, I think, you know, anytime that you would criminalize people for speaking out, that's terrifying. Right. And we know there's the abortion aspect of it, right? But then on top of that, if they choose to report a rape to police, which is people tend to not do, they don't get believed. You know, it's they can end up with charges on something else. And so it's actually just not beneficial for a lot of people. Some people do choose to do that. And that's great. But I think, again, it's very much a, your body, your choice. Like you have to figure out what feels best for you. And, you know, I think what's also really interesting about this depiction is that this woman knew that there was a possibility that she could be raped and still wanted the abortion that bad. And I think that it ends up where people are starting to say, like, look at, okay, well, in order to get this thing, that must be just part of the price. And it shouldn't be. But because we devalue women's bodies, femmes, trans folks' bodies, and we, the people in charge, the cis men, they're like, well, I get to take what I want because I know what I have is something that you can't easily access. And so when abortion is easily accessible, when it's affordable, when it's safe, when it's available everywhere, that takes that power away. And they want to maintain that. It's really scary. So I think it's it's really this absolutely powerful depiction for the show. Renee, you are just so amazing at breaking these down. We could do this with you forever, but... <laughs> Me too. Unfortunately, our time is coming to a close and we have to fit in the most rapid of cringe fires that we've probably ever done on this show. So we have three minutes... <laughs> Let's do it. ...for four questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Is there another show that you're binging right now? Ooh, actually, I'm uh, watching Vida because I am going to talk to the creator uh, in a couple of days. And I've sort of seen the depiction, but I wanted to watch the whole show. So Vida on Stars. 
What is something in the world that you are finding super cringy right now? Okay, it's really ridiculous, but on all of the other social media platforms, people complaining about Twitter on them. <laughs> Complain yeah. about Twitter, that's fine, but like, it's like you came to this new platform to be free of Twitter, and all you can do is complain about Twitter. Like, just actually just be on this other platform. I don't know if that I qualifies that. as cringy, but yeah. that's, no, it's that's a thing cringy. that's, that's grinding my gears right now. It certainly does. <laughs> Honorable mention, Twitter keeps nudging it's me terrible. to subscribe to Oof. Elon Musk. I'm, I'm yeah, not going no. to. No, please, that's I'm embarrassing for you. Literally. Um, okay, I think I know how you might answer this, but is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in media? Since, you know, I mentioned Dear White People, something I thought I love about that depiction, although they don't actually say the word abortion. I love that when Coco is talking about the sex that she had that resulted in the pregnancy and subsequent abortion, she's describing like anal sex and just like him eating her ass and just like all of this in such fun detail and that fun sex can lead to, yes, a pregnancy and needing an abortion. And it doesn't all have to be regretful sex. And I think that was one of, not the first, but one of the the first times that it really struck me that, wow, someone's talking about sex in a joyful way, not regretting it before saying they want an abortion. So, and Vida, I've been watching, they have a lot of really great queer sex and like, just like openness. And I think it's yeah. wonderful. Last question. Do you have a favorite sex scene in film, TV, literature, or depiction of sexuality? It's on True Blood. <laughs> it's Eric Northman <laughs> when he's fucking the other dude vamp who is like with the other old gay vampire and then it's revenge and then he kills him too. <laughs> but like, I, man, Eric Northman as like, the bi vampire, like I love me a Swede, like I just, yeah, that. Google, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, so I, that is not what I expected after that adorable giggle. I love it. <laughs> you have been phenomenal. We so so appreciate your time. Thanks for and thank having you me for the amazing work you do. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guest, Renee Bracey-Sherman. You can find her organization online at wetestify.com. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan, and Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song. You can find him on SoundCloud. And we really appreciate your support for us. Patreon.com slash cringewatchers is the best way to show your love for episodes like this. If you become a patron there, you get early access to episodes, bonus content, and much more. Please check it out. Thank you so much to all of our patrons for your love and support over the years. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us. 